My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, <laughs> it's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. Oh, it's getting hot. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't get Guess who? This week's interview is with someone I really rate both as a fashion designer and a human. I've written many stories about her over the years. She is one of the Business of Fashion's 500. That is their list of the most influential people in the industry globally. Her brand sells in 42 countries, in stores like Barney's New York and in London at Liberty and Harvey Nichols. What else? She is a New York Fashion Week veteran. She has a great accent. She has seriously great hair. Can you guess yet? Okay, so she has some very famous fans. Everyone from Beyonce and Rihanna to Scarlett Johansson, Alexa Chung, Lord, Lena Dunham, Toast the Dog. I like everyone. Everyone wears her sunglasses. Have you guessed? Arguably New Zealand's most famous fashion export. She is, of course, Karen Walker. It's always fun to talk to Karen, but I'm excited to have her on the show because of her long-standing commitment to ethical fashion. That is not a label she applies to herself, and we talk about why in this interview. But the Karen Walker label has good ethics in its DNA. Karen is very invested in the process of producing her products and the people who make them but also in what it means to work in fashion today, from your responsibilities with things like supply chains to the impacts that you can have through your advertising and messaging, and also the deep stuff like the very purpose of design. What is fashion for? I love when you can talk to people about this stuff. Like There aren't that many people that you can interview in the fashion world and start asking them those questions. What does fashion do? What is it for? And have a a great response. But Karen is one of those people. So we start off this interview talking about widening the lens on beauty. We're both fascinated by age and experience. For me personally, I prefer an interesting face to a Bambi cute one. My style icons are people like Diana Vreelands and Iris Apfel. And we talk about that and also about Karen's collaborations with Advanced Style and with the Ethical Fashion Initiative. We talk about beginnings. Karen started out by making a single men's floral shirt for a musician friend when she was 18 years old. What's changed and what's remained the same? She still works in Auckland. She still samples there. And she's still in love with the style codes that floated her boat way back then. What she describes as masculine and feminine colliding, utilitarian pieces and beautiful prints. We also talk about trends and how slippery they are. 
And Karen says there's no reason to throw things out at the end of the season. It's all about style. I love that. Before we dive in, I wanted just to say a big thank you to everyone who has left a review for this podcast in iTunes. We're reaching more people every week and it's really exciting and I have you to thank. So please, dear listeners, if you haven't already, consider rating and reviewing us in iTunes. Please tell your mates to subscribe, share on social media, and if you're feeling flush, consider supporting our patron page. I'll share the links in the show notes. Now, sunglasses at the ready. Hello, Karen Walker. <laughs> Hello. I'm pretty excited that we got to do this face-to-face. Well, it's always nice to be face-to-face. It is. And it's always nice to be in front of your face. But oh, I should be. I'm actually, I'm actually going to put on my Karen Walker sunglasses so that I'm face-to-face <laughs> with you, even though I'm indoors, with a bit of Karen Walker action. Please do never feel uh, like wearing sunglasses inside is wrong. Do you wear your sunglasses at night? No, I don't. (laughs) But I wear my spectacles at night because otherwise I can't read. (laughs) Now, Karen, I wanted to start talking about oldness because Iris Atful turned 96. She did. And I think she's one of the most beautiful people I can think of. Yes, she is. You and I both share the idea that beauty is not defined by youth. What do you think Mm. about that? Yes, I always have found beauty in interesting faces, interesting personalities, interesting stories. Beauty for me has never been about the flawlessness of the skin or somebody who looks freakishly childish. (laughs) And I just always want to see and hear a story that's going to engage me and be interesting. I mean, Um, there is no denying that kind of dewy beauty of youth, but there's more that's beautiful outside of that. That's not the mm -hmm. only thing, right? Oh, yeah, there's way more outside of that. The dewiness I, I find a little boring. Yeah, well, there's no most car- of the time it's less lived is, in, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Fewer that's years, right. less experience. That's right, and just too perfect and too cool, I find always a little restricting. You know, I like the imperfection. I think that that's where the interesting stuff happens, and the not the same, the not the cookie cutter, not following the rules. That's always what's lit me up. And that extends into my taste in beauty and in what I look for in a in an interesting face or an interesting person. And I mentioned Iris Apfel, and although you didn't photograph her, you mm. have in the past, in 2013, mm. collaborated with Ari Seth Cohen yes, of Advanced have. Style. Yes, we adore Ari. That was one of those sort of long shots where we wanted to shoot the eyewear campaign that season on people who weren't, you know, 20. We wanted the campaign on older ladies, and it was called Karen Walker Forever. And, Is that what it's called? Yeah, I didn't realise. Yeah. That's great. And uh, when we started um, you know, building the mood board of what the images should feel like, it was all Ari's photos. And we're like, well, then it has to be Ari who shoots it. You can't build a mood board with somebody's work and then get somebody else to emulate it that goes against everything I stand for. So I thought, God, how are we going to get Ari? Seth Cohen. And we rang him up and he was like, oh my God, I'm your biggest fan. And we're like, oh my God, we're your biggest fans. And it was like the sort of mute, the first 10 minutes on the phone was some sort of mutual fan out moment. And then we got down to business and did the job. And that's one of the pieces of work I'm most proud of in my life. And he is one of the people I value most in my life. He's done more than anyone I can think of to advance the idea of, Mm. I mean, advanced style, but to push the idea that there is beauty in all different kinds of ages and faces, but particularly in older, amazing faces. Yes, I agree. I think he's done more to introduce the idea of age and fashion not being mutually exclusive. And, yeah, there are plenty of people who've, 
photographed older faces and made them look beautiful. You know, Avedon was genius at that, but Ari did it very much in a fashion context, not a portraiture context, and I think that's perhaps what was different about what he did. Although they are portraits, they are through the lens of fashion, and also through lens of fashion where it's allowing the subject to express themselves. It's not about taking a person and having them dressed by a stylist. It's the personality coming through in every way of the subject. When you said that, I was thinking actually about Lisa von Segrieve. Think mm. about, we didn't always in fashion have this obsession with youth. In the 50s, mm. Mm. fashion celebrated 40-year-old beauty, 50-year-old beauty even. I don't know how old she was. Mm. But, you know, a grown-up, mm. mature woman. Okay, beautiful. Yeah. Kind of up until Kate kids. Moss, really. Yeah, I've got a big collection of uh, Harper's Bazaars going back to the 1920s, the American ones right up to the mid-70s that a friend bequeathed to me very kindly. Gosh. And um, whenever I look at them, I'm always struck by how the models in them look like women, like really look like women. And yeah, I've got a, a big collection of the Collectione magazines, you know, the ones from before the internet with all the runway shows. Oh, because that's how we used to have to consume used, what was yeah, on the runway. That's how we used Wait to for the out. magazine. That's right. And pay a fortune for this big Yeah, they're like $100. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, Kids, if you're listening to that, you'll yeah, think it's oh, crackers. Oh, you've got no idea. <laughs> and um, I was looking through some the other day from sort of the mid-'80s, and still all the models looked so old compared to how we're used to seeing fashion show now and you know just they looked like women and it was really only I think when Kate Moss came along that the models started looking like girls Mm. and that's not gone away and I think the Mm. we're seeing reactions to that around the edges that look with diversity in every form around what that look was that was really set 25 years ago what the, we're only really now seeing a reaction to that. And that idea of one idea of beauty, it's so restrictive, mm. isn't it? I mean, mm. there's obviously beauty in 16-year-old Kate Moss, but yeah. that's only one view. You yes, don't do right. that. I mean, Karen Walker as yeah. a brand is very embracing of different kinds of beauty and different yeah. kinds of customer, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you look at our imagery, I mean, first of all, we never cast on a look, we always cast on an attitude. So even if we are casting an 18-year-old model... I want to see what she looks like when she walks in. I want to see what her, what her attitude is when she walks in the room and have a chat to her. It's not about is she the right height or the, you know, obviously they've got to fit the clothes, but I want to see something in the eyes. And so that's always what I've looked for when I've cast models and then beyond the idea of 18-year-old girl who's with a modelling agency, there's so much more you can do outside of that model. And, you know, when I think about the work that we've done is photographically we've shot campaigns on balloons (laughs) Uh, so that's quite different dogs toast um (laughs) brooms done two campaigns with a broom we've done brooms and mops for the eyewear i did not we've done oh yeah we'll share those pictures in the show notes We've done two campaigns with Ari, Seth Cohen so on ladies one of my favorites can you share with us what that is It was a jewellery campaign we shot with Ari Seth Cohen and the idea was rather than just shooting rings or bracelets on the types of hands that you're used to seeing in imagery, we wanted hands that had a story and so we wanted to cast hands that had a talent, had experience and so we reached out to Ari again and said we want to shoot on hands that have character 
and do you know anybody? And he said, yes, <laughs> I do. I, you know, he's living in LA now because he was in New York when we shot the previous campaign. But he's living in LA now and so he said, I've got Phyllis and I've got Roberta. And Phyllis, who was 93 at the time, she's a pianist fashion designer, yoga fanatic, and she was the first American in the Ballet Russe. Oh, I remember the dancing part of that <laughs> yeah, story. It's yeah. so incredible. Yeah, amazing. And Roberta, she was a yeah, party girl and a stylist. She was a Broadway hoofer. She was a shark in the original West Side Story and a great-grandmother and blue hair, you know, like really blue hair, not old lady blue, like really cool blue. And it's just about, you know, it was about finding hands that could be as expressive as faces and tell those stories. But you told me just before we began recording that not everybody appreciated the beauty of the very experienced hands, mm. that people thought it was maybe ugly. Yeah, you know, most people loved it, but I think that there's such a brainwashing around beauty. And you know, with the face and the body, you can people can keep the look in line with the brainwashing. There's a lot you can do, but there's only so much you can do with your hands to prevent them looking the age they are. And so people are very confronted, I think, when they see older hands and are so, you know, programmed to think that age is bad yeah. and that it's ugly. I thought it was and moving so, and yeah, beautiful. I thought so too, mm. yeah. But it, was, it wasn't very many people who, who said that to me. But it was really interesting insight for me into how people relate to beauty. You see beauty, as we have mentioned in many areas, in many forms. Mm. But also you get that it's cool to be real. And what springs to mind is your recent campaign, which you shot on your staff mm. or some members of your mm. production and dispatch staff. Mm. Yeah. It's so cool. Thank you. Well, that was kind of a bookend to the collection we'd done for eyewear the season before where it was all shot on me in different disguises. So that campaign, uh, we shot it in LA and there were like nine different shots of me with different makeup, different wigs, different costumes. And it really looks like nine different people. It was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Was... I mean, it was like a film in yeah. still form. Yeah, it really was. Who were you? Well, there, there were a lot of different inspirations. There was a kind of, uh, you know, there was a Dolly Parton. There was a sort of Maplethorpe. There was a sort of Murder on the Orient Express. Kind of, you know, there was just, we just wanted a really wide kind of starting point for a mood for each character. And then when it came to shooting the ready-to-wear, not long after that, we wanted to kind of do the reverse. So rather than having it be shot on me, we wanted it to be shot on our team, on the people behind the scenes who you don't normally see. And also the collection was called Mutiny, and it kind of felt like a mutinous idea, having the team behind it go, no, we want the camera on us. And We're taking it back. You're taking it back. And that was really beautiful. You know, everybody looked very cool. And they had a lot of fun with it. And I think we really got the personalities. And I think we ended up with a really, really beautiful series of images. But yeah, the idea was it can be a bigger story than shooting on a model and doing an interesting backdrop or whatever, you know, a flick on the eye, whatever you know, that people do. That one was about really turning the lens on the crew. Was yeah. it also about the respect for the people that put your stuff together oh, I mean to me yeah, I always put yeah. that stuff on things but I was yeah. like okay you're celebrating the makers you're celebrating yeah, the pattern absolutely. makers absolutely or the yeah. yeah well I think all our campaigns are driven out of respect for the people who are in front of the lens when you began with Karen Walker I wear 10 11 12 years ago yeah getting is up it? there yeah really no one was doing it 
I mean, it wasn't there, such there a was, thing. I think there was, at the time, a little hiatus in terms of really fashion eyewear. It wasn't that interesting. It was quite generic. But the big brands didn't generally mm. Mm. add eyewear to their collections in the way that they do now. Or if they did, it felt like they were all just going to the same factory and saying, oh, we'll have that, 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 and that, and stick our badge on the side. And that's what we were reacting to, that at the time when we started doing eyewear, I, for my personal eyewear I was wearing, I was buying vintage, because when I went to shop eyewear, it all it kind of all felt like the same 10 styles with different logoing. It felt very generic. And so that's what we were reacting to. That everything felt, you know, just a bit limp, not very loved, not very interesting. And obviously there would have been exceptions, but that was sort of the general feel, I think, in the market. And so we came into it saying we think it can be more interesting, we think it can be bigger, bolder, flatter, chunkier, more toy-like, not just a generic shape with a logo on the side. So that was really what we were reacting to. And the imagery was the same. You know, the imagery around eyewear at that time, and still to a degree now, was kind of a sweaty-looking girl on a boat in the Amalfi Coast. And we thought it could be more interesting, and plus we couldn't afford to go to the Amalfi Coast. <laughs> <laughs> you can afford to go now. How big has it got? Oh, you know, it's still a boutique business, you know. it's We're very happy with the size of the business and the stores we're in and the customers we've got. But it's the a intention lot of with this is yeah, it's like, I don't know, stores oh, yeah, probably a bit more. more? Yeah. Probably Show 500. us the name some. Um <laughs> you know, Barney's, Nordstrom's, Netta Porter, Liberty, David Jones. You know, the, the pinnacle stores, the A grade stores, we're delighted to work with. And it's never for us going to be about being everywhere and being a very mass market brand. It's a boutique brand, it's a niche brand, and that's the way it's going to stay. Instagram has helped you win fans with because particularly the power of your imagery and you mentioned your husband mm-hmm. who is creative director, is mm-hmm. that right? Yes. And it's also, Instagra- and I also mean, you- Instagram works best where the camera is an arm's length away and guess what fits in? The face. So I don't think it's any coincidence that our eyewear happened at the same time as Instagram because with the arrival of Instagram, the face became much more important than it had been in terms of your projection. And also it's easier to shoot the front of your face than the side. So if you want a recognisable shape in the frame, it became very important. It's harder to show a logo like some badging on the temple. So, I mean, that's my hypothesis. I don't know whether there's really any truth in it or not, but I feel like, like the two were very connected that suddenly the face and the front of the face became very important in in people's projections of themselves. But if you can harness that thing, really clever product with something unique, with Mm. very, very strong and clever, clever Mm. imagery, Mm. you're on a winner. That's right. Instagram can help you. But what about the flip? I'm thinking of this through the lens of ethics. The flip side of that, and I do think we've talked about this before, Karen, is that it also allows everyone to see what you're doing and copy it. (laughs) I mean, how does that... Yes, we're very careful. People are going, once the product's in the market, people can see it no matter how. You know, the people who are in the business of counterfeiting, once upon a time they would have gone out and bought the product in the store, now they might be able to see it online, whatever. They were always finding a way to find the product and sell the product. And we're very careful we never release any imagery until the product's actually in the store. Oh, it's ready. So with everything now, nothing gets released in advance because for the counterfeiting, but really because nobody wants to wait. Because you're basically creating desire and then there's nothing to back it up. 
That's right. You're creating, if you release images three months before the product's ready, what's the point? It's in terms of marketing, it's kind of pretty basic, really. Mm, and yet most of the fashion industry hasn't really woken up to that. We've experimented with see now, buy now, but it seems mm. to have faltered a bit there. Yeah, and the, it, you know, it was quite strong there about two, three years ago. And then a couple of people kind of, I think, got cold feet and went back to the old model. But for us, it works really well, um, presenting our work the day the embargo for the images is the same as the embargo for the product on the mm. floor. Because that's how people want to consume. You see something you and you want to buy it, you don't want to wait. In three months' time, you will have forgotten. Impatient fashion. Yeah, but, you know, but it's just kind of common life. sense, yeah. really. Right. I mean, it's kind of, it, yes, it speaks to an impatience, but, I mean, it's just kind of makes sense it does make sense <laughs> now karen last time i talked to you about your eyewear we were talking about what makes a business valuable and what makes you tick and you mm-hmm. said to me that you're in the business of ideas and you said that's what we sell and i thought that's something so fascinating mm. it's not just about clothes or product or making something mm. you want to wear it's actually about a broader picture and, mm. and ideas when we mm. think about ethical, sustainable fashion and the value of a product, mm. we often forget to talk about ideas as being integral to that value. Mm. Good design is when something's been considered, whether it's in terms of the look, the fit, the functionality, the quality, the imagery around it. You know, it's not just about making a thing. It's everything about that. It's what the thing stands for. It's what the brand stands for and how it makes you feel. Those are all part of the design. And we're not in the business of churning out product. That's not what motivates us. We are in the business of ideas, and that might be one... In the morning, we might be creating an idea around some imagery or some words. In the afternoon, we might be creating an idea around a product or an experience in store. So that thought and design has to go into everything, not just the actual tangible physical objects that you can hold or try on. Or buy, you know, we we put that care and design into everything that we do and every way in which the Karen Walker brand interacts with people. And, yeah, so I've never considered this to be a business of making clothes or, you know, it's just not enough for me as a creative person. And, you know, just there's so much out there that is just stuff and that has never particularly excited me. I'm, I'm more interested in telling a story and experiencing a story where else in what you do does the value lie so in originality and storytelling but where else and i'm talking about i guess the integrity of how things are made Mm -hmm. quality Mm -hmm. where would you say the value lies yeah for me the quality is very important and you know i think one of the places that really comes through i mean the quality of our make i think is excellent but the quality of the development of the product the design and the, the the process that goes into the design process I think we work in a very different way to how most of the industry works. You know, the fashion industry is kind of, it all just feeds on itself. And there's, there's very few people who are at what we call the pointy end of the spear who actually get a bit of paper out and a, bit of, and a pen and sketch something. You know, most people, it's just like feeding off other people's ideas and there's a food chain and it's how it always has been. And so first of all, we're at that pointy end of the spear where we're not trawling through 
shops or through <laughs> Pinterest or whatever and just like regurgitating other people's thoughts. Well, not thoughts. even sending out people to buy samples from other places. I mean, I think yeah, that the, very few or not all listeners would be aware that much of the kind of mass fashion industry operates still on that level. They, yeah, they go to people LA to and buy it and drop it off in Shenzhen on the way home. That's, that is the reality of 99% of the business. So, you know, we have designers who sit down with a Zeta pad and a pencil and so sketch. What pad? A Zeta pad. Ooh. It's like design paper. Oh, oh that's a good... And a good Scrabble word. How do you spell it? Z-E-T-A. <laughs> if you got that in a double word score, you'd be happy, wouldn't Ooh, you? I'd, I'd, be always be, I'd be aiming for the triple letter on the Z, actually, joining into something else. But that's how you do it. <laughs> so that's how we do it. And then we have a design a, a sampling room as well. So we have a designer. We don't go to wherever and buy samples. We actually sit down and draw them and think of them, make them up. And Do you sample we, in New Zealand? Then, yeah, we sample in New Zealand. And that's something that's very rare as well for designers now to have their own sampling room. That just really doesn't happen. Most of the time in this industry, a sample will be bought or a picture will be printed off Business of Fashion's runway shots and sent to a factory somewhere and a sample comes back and maybe one change gets made and then it's straight into production. So there's no... It's getting less and less care going into the actual design and also even if you are a good designer and you're forced to work in that environment you might only get one crack at the sample and for us sometimes we'll have five goes before it's perfect we've got nine incredible sample machinists two incredible pattern makers two great cutters two sample room managers plus our design team who we will just keep refining if we think it's good we will just keep going back until it's perfect and that's so rare and that's, I think, one of the things that I'm proudest about in terms of what we do and, and one of the things that I think is you know, very unusual, that we will invest the time and have this expert team actually refining and caring and not letting it out until it's what we consider good enough. What about when it comes to having collections made and about production? I mean, that's mm. the issue that everyone's mm. talking about in sustainable fashion and ethical fashion right mm. now, which is you know, the dreaded dry-term supply chains. Once you say, I'm going to be discussing supply chains, people go, well, I'm going home, don't they? And yeah, yet that is much. very important to the conversation. How do you handle production? Uh, I mean, we, a big question. We have very few factories we work with, like four, one or two in New Zealand and four in China. Plus we have our own in-house sampling room who can also do like really specialised, like really tricky stuff for production from time to time and we have worked with those factories for I don't know, a decade or more very small factories like a couple of dozen people at most we visit them a couple of times a year plus we have a permanent person on the ground in China who's in the factories all the time and it really just comes down to very small factories who can work to our quality and work to our run size but who we can just wrap our arms around and have a relationship with and our on the ground in China, staff member and our staff members in Auckland who visit frequently can really build those relationships with and have trust in. That's what it comes down to, like having a relationship that's so strong and long-standing and open that you can have a trust that what you're seeing is the real thing. And is that all... I mean, obviously that is helpful when it comes to caring for workers and people... Mm. But is it also, what are the other benefits from that? Because listening to you talk, I think it obviously helps the product. It helps the product. It's, yes, it, it allows you to know everybody in the team, 
to see everybody in the team, to be in the factories. Um, nobody's hiding behind big trading companies, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's no outworking from the factories. It's all there. We know exactly where it is. But yes, it means when you've got those relationships, it means that the people who work in the factories and who own the factories care. And that's actually the most important thing in any level of the business, that they care, whether it's me caring about the design or our store staff caring about their customers or our PR team caring that the spelling is perfect in the press release. You know, it's, it's just that level of giving a shit at a very high level that we look for in everything we do, including factories that we have relationships with. So you've chosen to work with the Baptist World Aid Report, which annually grades more than 300 fashion companies on supply chain transparency. In 2016, you received a C-plus mm-hmm. rating. This year, you got a B-plus rating, and I do just want to put that in context for listeners. Mm-hmm. So a B-plus rating is the same as David Jones got, who've got a full-time ethical sourcing manager and are doing a lot of work around trying to make mm-hmm. all of their suppliers and businesses ethically, environmentally aware, mm-hmm. child and slave, labour-free and more sustainable. And also it's the same rating as Levi's, which is obviously a giant company mm-hmm. with a mega sustainability department. So a B-plus mm-hmm. is rad. Mm-hmm. But why is it important for you to take part in this? Because these things are quite loaded. People go, oh, well, C's, what's C? Mm. You know, it can be dangerous territory. Not everyone wants to get involved. Mm. It was a risk. And I think we're probably the only people in it who put our hands up and said, please, can we work with you? I think most other people are... I think everybody else is... Yeah, It's a nightmare. You get it wrong. And, I mean, look, I'm talking about Gorman, which everyone knows that story, where they didn't respond. Not Mm. that they failed, but Mm. they didn't respond or the Mm. owners... So they get an F. They get an F. Just for not answering questions. And they get on the evening news. So, yeah, we... So it's thorny. We've got a a, a very strong production team. We've been working for many years around this area of our social responsibility and what factories we choose to work with and how we work with them and how we support the people who work in the factories and all those questions. And so we've been working very hard on that for many years. And we kind of got as far as we could figure out how to get. And then we saw what Baptist World Aid were doing and we thought they will help us find anything that we haven't noticed that we could do better. And so that's why we approached them. And you know, they came back to us and said, these are the areas where we think... We haven't got the right processes in place, mainly. And we never would have thought of those left on our own. So, yeah, it's about everything we do is collaborative. And so with them, it's it's just working with them to find out how we can do that side of our job better. And most of what they found when the first year we, we asked to work with them was about our processes and our rules and our policies getting through to every member of our team. Um, so, yeah, we were doing the factory audits before engagement and then every X number of months and and so on. But every single person, like the 20 people working in the factory, weren't aware of it or didn't have a phone number that they could phone or there wasn't something displayed on the wall, those sorts of things, which are all really simple things to do and, of course, make total sense. But when you're not, when you don't have a full-time person on the job who only works in this area, you might not know those things. So we were able to really quickly instigate those. And then there's one or two things that we want to refine this year. And also we've chosen to go right back into our fabric sourcing. And not many people do that. Most people work in the manufacturing sourcing, but don't actually go back into where the cotton's grown or what have you. So we've chosen to go back into that area as well, for our fabric sourcing. Then there are areas that affect a, a grade that we probably won't ever do, which is things like having your factories 
addresses and details visible on your website and stuff like that. But there's no benefit to us doing that. That's just going to give our competition people they can phone. So, you know, we just we really work with them not so much about having the grading okay. public. It's about helping us to do the very best that we can in terms of working in that area. That's amazing. Mm. And also interesting because what you're saying is that by asking more questions and trying to seek help in this area, mm. we can all do better. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's, it's, I always find it quite disappointing that none of our peers have done the same thing. I always find that quite surprising, actually, that nobody else has put their hand up and said, we're working hard in this area, but we think we can do better. How, can you help us find the areas in which we could improve? And also it's a difficult rating to compare because you are comparing people like Levi's who are however many billion dollar company with very, very small companies like ours that comparatively make so little product that we're really like a tiny, tiny, tiny little thing in terms of our footprint on the planet. So I think it's very, they're in a Baptist World Aid kind of, they're in a difficult place because they've only got so many people and, and, uh, you know, they're they're trying to raise funds to fund it and, and talking to the people who they're working with to help fund the process because it's expensive for them. So it's difficult for them to go out and go, okay, we're just going to focus on more small brands or fashion brands. It's so big. But many smaller brands just don't have the resources to even open these conversations, and Mm. I think that that's that's a real thing. It is, but you have a responsibility to. You know, we're a small brand. We're really small. But if you have a responsibility that if you're going to be making product, you need to make sure that the people you work with are taken care of. How important is ethical production to you and how do you view that phrase, ethical fashion? Yeah, it's quite a hard one to quantify, isn't it? Mm. Um, It's quite oblique. It's completely completely oblique and it's become a cliché and something that kind of means everything and means nothing and something that's easy to hide behind and, you know, greenwashing is so common. So I think it kind of means nothing until you actually quantify it and give the real facts behind it. And we often talk about um, the idea that sort of slapping a label on it, ethical fashion or sustainable fashion, is problematic because what we really should be talking about is fashion. All fashion should be ethical and that's what we should be Mm. aiming for. If you kind of put it in Mm. a category, I don't know, it's tricky. I I Mm. struggle with, should I describe myself as Mm. I write about ethical fashion? I don't know. I was told Mm. not to put it on the cover of my book because, Mm. again, it's one of those off-putting things that people are like, ooh. (laughs) Not buying that. (laughs) Go on. 12-point type ethical and supply chains. Bestseller. Sorry, <laughs> rebranding wardrobe crisis. Your supply chain handbook. <laughs> but whenever you're making something, I mean, just sitting here breathing, we're, you know, not helping the planet. So, you know, no matter what you do, you're going to leave a footprint. And my point of view is always our business isn't built around people consuming lots. Our business is built around we make some beautiful things, we put a lot of care into the ideas. If you love it, you love it, but it's not for us about being massive and selling lots. It's about just making beautiful things that people will have forever and, you know, enjoy for whatever reason. But it's I can't bear the idea of the of disposability around fashion. I know that's built into fashion, but I think that that's kind of changed in a lot of ways. Like, I think for smart fashion consumers, that idea of trends, you know, that everything's in fact, you have people say to me, like people outside of the industry will go, Oh, what are the trends? <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not in the trend end of the business. I'm in the design end of the business. But also, everything's in fashion and everything's out of fashion. It's just about how you put it, how you choose to put it together. 
And so nothing, there's no reason to throw something out after a season or get a completely new whatever every season because so much of it's down to styling. Or, and I'm a big fan of having a uniform as well. I love a uniform. You love a stripe. I love a Breton. Love a pair of man-style pants. You know, love a blazer. You loved a men's shirt because it was the first thing you ever made and there was only one. <laughs> oh, nice segue. Well, That's I was thinking you said, you said we're not in the business of pumping out a lot of stuff and I was like, you, you were in originally in the business of pumping out one single shirt. One single shirt, yeah, for a friend who, uh, yeah, I was 18. I was at fashion school. A friend of mine was in a band and he said, I need something to wear on stage. I'm thinking, you know, I'd like a shirt. I mean, I've got an idea for a shirt. I really like Liberty print florals, but I've never seen it in a man's cut on a dude. Why don't we do that? I was like, yeah, awesome. So it was, you know, one of those very tiny little ditzy lawn cotton pink floral, yeah, the classic Liberty, but did it into just a man style shirt. And um, and other people saw it and they're like, oh, can I have one of those? So I made, a, you know, ended up making a few and that's how it all started. But it's interesting because the very handwriting of our brand was there in that first garment, which was about masculine and feminine colliding, about utilitarian pieces, about beautiful prints. You know, it was all there in that very first thing. Isn't it interesting that you can look back and see that, yeah. but at the time you wouldn't have had no, a clue what you were no, going to no, build? No, it was just like, yeah, no. God did no. you have a plan? No. <laughs> no when did plan. you get one? <laughs> I, still, I don't know. I still don't still have one. got one. <laughs> <laughs> but come on, you must have developed a plan at some point because well, you became fairly fast a very big deal I mean if pe- if you say to someone who do you know from New Zealand in fashion mm. everyone knows it's you mm-hmm. maybe they also know Zambezi mm-hmm. actually there's a f- New Zealand punches above its weight in terms of numbers of great designers because there's Kate Sylvester mm-hmm. I mean how many people are in New Zealand now I don't know four million I wanted maybe, to say five push, million but yeah. it could be four, four, four and a half, seventy million possums <laughs> <laughs> I always remember that <laughs> seventy million possums genius yeah, so you have done deservedly extremely well with your work. At what point did you figure out a roadmap for where you wanted to take it? My roadmap's always been sort of three, four, five years out. I've never been able to plan further ahead than that. And I think actually it's hard for anybody to plan further ahead than that. You can say you do, but really that's a very long projection if you're going past 60 months because things change really fast in the modern world and the fashion business. So my vision has always kind of been like a few years down the track. And then human nature is just keep extending that and changing what that finish line might look like. When did you get a fashion dream? As a kid? Yeah, when I was six. That was a very specific response. Yeah, yeah. I remember it. <laughs> Do tell. I remember it. My grandmother was staying with us. She was a very good sewer. She'd been a seamstress. And she was a very good sewer. And my mother was also a very good sewer. I've still got my mother's Bernina. She got us a, probably a wedding present. Have you? Yeah. That's it's what I learned to sew on. Yeah. Stashed away in the warehouse somewhere. <laughs> anyway, my grandmother, I had a Barbie doll, speaking of, you know, awesome body images. And my grandmother taught me how to make a circular skirt for my Barbie. My mother always had a box of fabrics folded very neatly in the cupboard. And there was this gauzy uh, sort of organza with a pale, pale mint floral print on it I can still picture it and my grandmother taught me how to make you know cut one big circle and then one small circle and it was this full length beautiful circular gown circular and skirt the drape, even though a it's drape. so simple yeah so beautiful and I had this little brown leather belt that I could cinch them in with and I was like this. first of all it looks awesome and I made it and that idea of being able to create 
stuck with me from that moment. And yeah, I've carried on to make many circular skirts for Barbie. <laughs> for <laughs> for Barbie. And, <laughs> and, um, in reality, of course, you can't make a circular skirt because it'll retail at like $5,000. Oh, too much fabric. <laughs> too much you had to cut some of that out. Yeah. But no, what that defining moment was for me was introducing to six-year-old me the idea of being able to make something and have it be good. And so that was a very, very significant moment for me. And fashion was always in front. You know, I grew up in a household where the taste and design was you know, not like top level consideration around it, but you know, it was there. What did uh, your parents do? My mother was a homemaker and my father was in the travel business. But you know, there was always thought and care into the setting, the environment, the garden, the clothes. And so that was, I had that in front of me as a, as a as, you know, what's normal. And so that love of aesthetics, and you know, it was still a suburban version of it, but, you know, there was a love of aesthetics and that idea, that very early notion of I can make something. I want to finish up by talking about I can make something because mm. that's so integral to fashion. Fashion's about hands. Mm. Yes. And thinking about hands, I think about someone that, I know, and you've worked closely with, who is Simona Cipriani from the Ethical Fashion Initiative, now rebranded as Artisan Fashion. Mm -hmm. But Simone talks so beautifully about the fact that it's hands that make this business. It's hands and it's Mm -hmm. the ability to make things and it's artisanship Mm -hmm. and it's craft. Yes. And that's what is behind all of this stuff that we wear or that we use accessories. Yes. And I think we lose sight of the fact that so much of what we wear, particularly jewellery and clothes, are such ancient crafts. And, yeah, we work in the area of fine jewellery. And when I visit the factory where a lot of our jewellery is made or the sampling's developed, it's not so different to what it was. Yeah, there's some high-tech stuff. There's some 3D printing and what have you. But most of it is jewellers sitting at workbenches with the tools, with the you know, the leather apron and all that kind of stuff and the, the smells that go with it. And it's not that much different to what it was hundreds of years ago. So, yeah, there are definitely elements in what we do, you know, we're in the business of fragrance as well. The principles are exactly the same. It might be that, you know, there are robots involved now in terms of pulling the juices out and all that kind of stuff. But the principle of it is not that much different to what it was you know, 400 years ago. So there is craft at the heart of most of what we do. And I think that's what I love about it, that it does come down to individuals and ideas and hands actually creating things. How did you work with the Ethical Fashion um, Initiative? You met well, Simone at a oh, conference, yeah. didn't you? Well, no, we worked with them before that, actually. We've done a project with them about a year before that, like 2012, 2013. We made a bag with them. With Maya. With Maya. And uh, then I met Simone here in Sydney the following year. We had dinner. So then we pitched to him over dinner the idea of their team in Kenya making like wearable pouches for our eyewear for the coming collection and photographing the eyewear, speaking of not photographing on models, photographing the eyewear in Kenya with Derek Anderson shot it on the people who actually made the product. So similar to what we did just with our staff with Mutiny in a way, same idea. And we, I think we made like 40 or 50,000 pouches with them and we went to Kenya. I wasn't able to go, unfortunately, but my team went to Kenya and photographed on his team wearing the glasses and then we laid it up with the landscape so it, the people felt like they could have been anywhere because they were just shot quite tight against a backdrop, but then we laid it up as, as double pages with the landscape. It was beautiful. I'm thinking two things. One is that that, again, is about the beauty in 
outside of the parameters of the normal mm. idea of fashion beauty. Mm. I mean, those right. are beautiful photographs. Thank you, yeah. But then beautiful. I'm also thinking about when people don't get it, because when we talked about the yeah. 1% who went, oh, old hands, I don't like them, yeah. then there was backlash over that because people said, well, you didn't make your glasses in Kenya, so it's not valid. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> I don't agree with that. Yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> because it was a collaboration. Where, yeah. But why is that? Because that's their skill set in the bag making. Yeah, and that's why we love working with artists in fashion. And we've done six projects with them now, I think. We've got another one in design at the moment that's about to start being sampled. We do something with them every year and always with their team in Kenya. But they've got teams all around the world, but we like working with just one team so we keep going back to the same people. And also we like the skill set that's available there. They're really good with canvases, with screen printing, with leather work, with beading, with metal work, like making bells out of old carburetors and stuff like that. So it's the tools and the crafts that are available with that team fit well with our aesthetic. So we just keep going back to the same team. We love them. And actually those hubs, which is what they call them, are locally run. They're self-run by these really skilled artisans mm -hmm. who basically, with the help of this NGO, are hooked up with big fashion. Mm. Yeah, and um, they really only work with the high-end fashion brands because it's Stella expensive. So it's, Westwood, yeah. Yeah. Karen Walker. Yeah. So, yeah, they've really pitched their team as being very much at that high end, the, the sort of premium end of the market because that's the, those are the types of designers that can really go, oh, wow, what are your skills and we can really do something interesting with this and take it to the next level. And keep doing it. Yeah, and come back, yeah. They're not interested in just one-offs, and we're not either. So the developments, I just was looking at CADs yesterday, actually, for the next project we're doing with them, and they're going to be beautiful. I loved your bags from, was it um, last season, or resort? Oh, with the mean, Mujer ones with the pom-poms? Well, you know what? I don't know how to say it, so you will have to tell mm -hmm. me how you say it. Is that right? Spanish for woman. <laughs> so I've written it down, yeah. and I was going to go, Muja. <laughs> you I wouldn't mind what you meant. <laughs> Yeah, they were beautiful. And the, you know, the interesting things with those pom-poms, like they mean, send us... The great thing about working with these guys is they're so answerable. So at the end of each project, you get a full report saying, you know, you made 700 units or 1,000 units, whatever it was, and this many people were employed, and this many people increased their skill set, and, this, and the feedback is this percentage of the wages from that was put into savings or into kids' education, or there was a, a generator bought for the village. Or, wow. you know, so you, it's very, very transparent. And, and that's really what keeps me going back every season that I get this, every year I get this report and I can see the difference it makes. And then you get the photos and you know all those little pom-poms on, on those bags. It was beautiful photographs, these women with their kids under the shade of a beautiful tree making these pom-poms. And it's just like, that looks like a really awesome place to be. Yeah. And working and you know, not being dragged away from their villages or their kids. The work goes out to each village, each element of it. So it's not about leaving the family. It's about staying with the family. That's the whole principle of it. And it's also about trust that has been built, that you know that you're working with people who've been established in this mm. area with, as I said, locally run mm. teams That's that right. are really taking great care with That's how right. this is. It's not That's just right. some marketing that's right, exactly. And and also, it's like I was saying before, we like working with people over a long period of time. So this is now our seventh, probably, collaboration with these guys. So we have that trust. And the UN thing also really gives you that solidity to it. I love it. And I also think when we're talking about this idea of fashion shouldn't be disposable, there's an argument right there for exactly the opposite. These things mean things. They're storytelling, they're mm. meaningful, they come from stories and memories, and they mm. make new ones. Yes. That's what I like about clothes. We just, yeah. we forget it. We forget yeah. that's the most important bit. 
That's right. It's all storytelling. Thank you, Karen Walker. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Pleasure. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you